Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What is up? What's going on? Oh, I feel like we're in this like post-election moment where there's nothing going on. Like other than the fact that SNC-Lavalin executives got nailed with corruption charges and... Mm -hmm. What timing? What timing? Wasn't that interesting? It's like, oh, that didn't happen four days earlier in the middle of the election voting. Hmm. If by interesting you mean obvious what's going on there, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's what I meant. That's that's what I meant. So, you know, we're just like in this holding pattern, like media is acting as if there's nothing going on, except, of course, there was big news in the last couple of days, which we'll talk about. But it feels pretty chill, you know, we went through that election. It was all good. Everyone got what they wanted. (laughs) Everybody got what (laughs) they wanted, which was nothing different. I guess that's what everybody wanted. Probs not, but okay. <laughs> I, uh... I listened to this great podcast last night that I want to recommend to you. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an NPR podcast. Well, it's a popular NPR podcast called Invisibilia. And the episodes that I wa- listened to last night were uh, about um, this kind of almost like anti-news news website in Stockton, California, and how how people, how news has shifted and changed. Anyways, it's a fascinating listen because it is replete with all of the things about how we get information in today's day and age that um, are concerning, like conspiracy theories abound on this website, about this website. <laughs> it's just... Um, very, very interesting. But the thing that I found most interesting about it was that they discussed at some point, like the history of news. And you and I have talked on this podcast before about how newspapers, their origins have been, you know, they've been tied to the elite, to political parties, and to corporations and so on. And, um, you know, I've not known about the history of news beyond Canada, but turns out that's a universal history, um, according to this (laughs) podcast, which makes sense because, you know, only a certain segment of the population could read when newspapers were um, beginning to ascend in popularity. And uh, the thing that I found really interesting was that they said this idea of objectivity in the news only came about as as newspapers began to rely on advertisers. So it is Mm. a capitalist idea. It is uh, a capitalist incentive to be objective in the news so as not to scare off any potential advertisers. And I thought, fascinating. And where that has left us today, as the news continues to pretend to be objective... And how people are starting to really reject that because it's so obvious that the news is not objective. I just thought it was a really fascinating thing to think about. Mm. It's especially interesting considering the necessity of news to look unbiased to be able to sell stuff. Because otherwise your car dealership or printing shop or hat store would be like necessarily supporting the content of the articles that it was, you know, beside, right? And so you can see that this idea that this is a neutral location for people to get neutral information is ideal for an advertiser because you can then say, 
you know, this is a, a newspaper of record or of respectable level of whatever and buy our hats. It's, I think that's really fascinating. That's a really fascinating mm-hmm. history that um, – that is quite instructive, considering the advertisements have, advertising has fallen uh, through the floor in uh, the uh, in the media industry in Canada. And so, what does that mean for us moving forward? Exactly. Maybe maybe this is something that should be abandoned. <laughs> the idea that all news is objective, because we know that it ain't. Anyway, I thought you might like no, that. No, I love that. That's awesome. Thank you for that. I, we've got some more thank yous to give. There's a whole bunch of folks that we have to say thanks to this week. Um, and so to everybody that supports the podcast, we really, really appreciate that support, um, especially if you share it. Uh, this past week, there were a lot of folks that shared our election ep- episode. And so thank you very, very much for that. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, thank you. But specifically this week, uh, we have got to say thank you to the following people who have donated to us for the first time or changed their donation, specifically Jonathan, Katerina, Lydia, Vanda, Madison, Glenn, Chris, Nigel, Don, Justin, and Brianna. Thank you so, so much. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. So you said big news this week. I mean, what was you talking about, Nora? Big news. (laughs) Well, actually, uh, to go back to what you were talking about, this whole idea that news is objective, um, kind of fell apart uh, the last couple of days when um, the big international news was announced that Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig were coming back to Canada. So they are two Canadians that have been held in uh, detention in China and were widely seen as uh, having been arrested in retaliation for Canada's arresting of Meng Wanzhou, who is an executive with Huawei. And Meng was transiting through the Vancouver airport. The Canadian government, uh, on the request of the Trump government, (laughs) uh, arrested her. Ridiculous. Yeah, arrested her for violating the American sanctions on Iran. Um, And it's a bit of a convoluted story. Um, Essentially, uh, the accusation was that she was operating a subsidiary company of Huawei to try and be able to spend money in Iran to get around the American sanctions. That was the charge. And, um, you know, out of the 300,000 Canadians who live in China, the Chinese government picked these two guys uh, randomly uh, to some extent. Although, I mean, Michael Spavor, like, was the guy that organized, like, the Dennis Rodman and some of Trump's senior um, senior guys trip to North Korea and was, like, close with the North Korean uh, leadership. It's just a very, um, you know, we, we, we've, they've been, in, they were in prison for more than two years. And I don't know, Sandy, did you see much about like that questioned any of the official narrative that the Canadian like government was putting out? Or did it Dude, seem kind of like- The election ended and all <laughs> news ended. The only thing that I saw um, <laughs> with respect to this news was like universal celebration of the Michaels, you know, like, so no, no, there was no questioning. There was no information. I truly don't even understand this world. I know it would take a lot of research to try to understand what's going on because it's not the, the sort of information you would need around this, this story to truly understand it is not being delivered in the mainstream. No. And, and it like one of the kind of interesting things um, that, that is part of the story is so Michael Spavor has this company 
Um, it operates in China and it and is a tourism and cultural exchange company uh, for people to visit North Korea. And um, a, an article written by David Klimenhaga, who's uh, a longtime journalist and retired journalist and uh, union activist, um, actually kind of tied some connections between him and another family that was a bit high profile, the Garrett family, who were also jailed in China uh, in a situation that seemed retaliatory. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting connections and you, you know, there's the whole the whole question, of course, one, uh, were the two Michaels spies? I mean, like, my God, no way was journalism entertaining that. Um, but on the other side, there was no uh, no attempt to try and be like, OK, there's so many Canadians in China. If the argument is that this was retaliatory, which I mean, they were released instantly. So that was China being like, yeah, fuck it was. <laughs> why was there no investigation into these two guys to say why they were chosen? They, they didn't, China didn't pick two random Canadians living in China. And we didn't get that story at all. Instead, instead what we get is like the Globe and Mail on every single front page newspaper giving a daily count up of how many days in detention the two Michaels had passed. Like it, it, it just, it, it felt like there was absolutely no, um, there was no distance between the federal government's line and the 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 all national journalists and the excitement that they that they that they expressed yesterday when it came home it was very illustrative because it showed the journalists felt I don't know, involved in this or especially close to this. I don't know what it is because there's a lot of fucking Canadians that spend a lot of time in jail unjustly. There's a lot of injustice, like police shootings in this fucking country. Um, there's a lot of violence against uh, against women. There's a lot of violence against trans people. There's a lot of violence against children. And for some reason, it was the two Michaels that created this incredible wave of relief from the Canadian press corps, which I just thought was very telling. I mean, Nora, you sound really cynical. Like, you don't think that the number <laughs> of days, the day count of these these two men in prison is not the most important thing that Canadians need to know about the situation? <laughs> No, no, I don't. I don't. I, that doesn't seem like journalism. That seems like something that would be on the front page of like Canada Foreign Affairs website. And you know, I was thinking about like what would happen if if Galen Weston were to be arrested in China for fixing the price of bread, doing something super <laughs> super illegal, something that is unquestionably illegal, and he was transiting through China. Ugh, unthinkable. The Canadian government would lose their shit. I mean, like, Loblaws was rewarded after that. Yeah. And so here we have this, like, situation where Trump yeah. is asking Canada to enforce bullshit sanctions on Iran. Like, let's also remember that the sanctions on Iran are completely fucking bullshit. They're unjust. And Canada is now like, okay, yeah, we'll jump into fucking the global geopolitical sandbox. Uh, oh my God, they arrested the two Michaels. We didn't fucking see that coming. Yeah. And then rather than having a single journalist ask questions about the fuck is going on, it's just been two and a half years of complete jingoistic, raw, raw Canada bullshit. And it's, it's, it's a really bad sign for journalists in this country to be able to actually challenge fucking anything. Well, I also think that, Nora, that this like follows a grand tradition of how Canada sees itself and how it reports on itself in its activities globally. Canada is a global player, you know, like, I mean, Canada has engaged in some pretty heinous shit globally over the years. And that's just not how Canada um, mythologizes itself or how the average person in Canada thinks about Canada globally. 
the idea is that Canada only gets involved in global shit when it comes to creating peace, whatever the fuck that means. But that's simply not true. And so the resistance to investigating it, I mean, that's, it's, it's a powerful resistance and it's a powerful, it has powerful comp- consequences, not investigating that stuff, not telling the truth about that stuff and not, um, you know, really being clear about, yeah, no, there is a reason why Canada's in the G20 and it's not just because of peacekeeping, y'all. <laughs> no, and you're not actually going to hear uh, what that reason is because it, it just, when you've got media concentration to the extent that you have it in Canada, the only people who rise to the top, I mean, I think we fucking literally said this last week. The only people that rise to the top are the ones who have direct connections to like maintaining the status quo, whether that is a family connection because their parents were journalists, whether that is like their fucking ex-husband is a conservative operative or their current husband is a conservative operative. It's like the number of women journalists who are married to fucking conservatives is like very surprising to me and very confusing actually as well. (laughs) But, you know, we don't see this. Canadians don't see this. And instead what we get is this is retaliatory. Um, and, And part of it too is it's like China is just so like, we don't give a fuck about you guys. Like Canadian, there's literally analysis in Canadian newspapers today about whether or not the jailing the two Michaels re- was retaliatory and that the proof was that they were released at the same time. And China's like, no, no, that was a coincidence. And Canadian journalists are like, oh, we got to investigate this. It's like, obviously it was not a coincidence. Obviously it was retaliatory. They are trolling the fuck out of this country. How do you not like, why are you pretending otherwise? Well, Nora, I think that this is a good segue into kind of the topic for tonight, which is that we, we, why are they pretending otherwise? Well, Nora, I don't know if you've noticed, but there is, as we talked about last week, a crisis of democracy happening in this so-called country. Have you noticed? Have you seen Mm. it? No? No, I didn't notice. No, I felt like everything felt really democratic (laughs) recently. I've been feeling democracy's flame inside of my fucking Jesus. heart. I, I've been looking at some of the um, post-election analysis that um, uh, folks are ta- talking about, like, what what happened? Like, what went wrong? Like, why, why did Canada choose the same thing? And I'm seeing people say, well, it was voter turnout because of COVID. Like, that's the reason. That's the real reason. That's what mm-hmm. happened here. It's not. It's not because people were uninspired, not because the entire election campaign had nothing to do with anything that anyone was concerned about. It's not because <laughs> the whole message of the campaign was driven by the the people who were speaking to the moment, which was the PP party. No, no, it was voter turnout because of COVID. And I mm-hmm. found yeah. that just a little unconvincing. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like, um, you know, uh, sure, sure. It sucked that there wasn't polling stations on campus, which, by the way, is something students fight for every year. Like, you don't just get given that. That was nowhere in the analysis. <laughs> like, you have to fight for that. Yeah, I don't. Did we did we talk about this on the air? Or did I'm we not talk sure. About this before the air, I don't remember. I think we talked about it before the air. But y'all, like the 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 frustration over the polling stations not being on campus was amazing to see. It was like, wow, 
people are really upset about this. Yeah. And it was like, you you know, people were like, Elections Canada is like taking away the vote from students, whatever. And yeah, I mean, you should be upset about it. But it's a very new phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> Election Polling stations on campus are very new. And um, it's great because it makes the job of students who should be organizing around education issues, which I don't even know if that happened during the election, um, it makes their job much easier. But for students like myself and Nora at the time that we were students, I guess I'm still a student, fuck. But at the time that we were students, the time that we were, I know I'm so, this is terrible. At the time that we were undergrads, um, you know, we would still organize even if the the polls were not on campus yep. and um, winning the polls being on campus was a huge campaign that we were a part of and won. But I mean, Nora and I are still pretty fucking young. So it's not that like, it's not, yeah. it's not like um, outside of memory that those things were not an obvious uh, occurrence on every election and it is too easy to say that that's the problem. Like, that wasn't the problem. It's part of maybe some disappointment, but it's not the problem of what happened during the election. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. The crisis of democracy goes way, way deeper than um, the polling stations not being available at all of the places we're used to them being available. It's far deeper than the infrastructure of the election. It's deeper than a really annoying debate. And it is deeper than, dare I say, <laughs> Rosemary Barton. <laughs> I mean, sorry. How, how could you be less deep than Rosemary Barton? Oh. <laughs> okay. Did you see the pause? Just for a moment. Did you see? <laughs> did you see? Did you see? Did you see the article in the Globe and Mail that was just like, stop fucking ragging on Rosie Barton? I, I felt like it was written to us. I mean, personally. it might be written to us personally, but did you like, I was like, no way someone actually spent time writing this article. So I opened it up and read it and it was the weakest defense of a person I have ever read. Like if I was Rosie Barton being excited about something like that being written and then read it, I would be so sad. Like it almost contributed (laughs) to the problem because it said, yeah, she sucks. Of course she sucks, but we can't really get much better. So stop ragging on her. And it was like, Ooh, that's the defense. Ooh. Well, at least you agree. Yeah. I mean, they also and this was a very um, talented sleight of hand from John Doyle at the at the Globe and Mail. Uh, He made it all about misogyny, which is like, I mean, yeah, I don't doubt that she gets misogynistic comments like we all fucking do. (laughs) She also has the profile and the salary and the fucking protection to go along with it. So, I mean, I wonder what that's like. Um, But certainly I actually don't see – well, I mean, I don't follow the fucking people giving misogynistic comments. I'm not going to see that. But I definitely see a lot, a lot of complaining about her – uh, 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 perceived biases, the, the the ways that she conducts her interviews, basically the stuff that we were saying last week. And, uh, you know, it was so clever to put another media person, like another outlet, uh, def- like go in the defensive, on the offensive for her saying, 
this is misogyny rather than, hmm, no, wait, wait, why does she sound like she's fucking fed up by listening to anybody that's not a liberal? And why does she sound really cozy with people who are liberals? And it's just so it's funny because I had a couple of debates with some journalists about this. And I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be a journalist that pretends to be unbiased. But as someone who is very left wing, I like I would have absolutely no problem on an election night covering all of the parties the same. I would have no problem with that because I don't have a horse in the race. It's like no matter who wins, democracy fucking loses everybody. So let's look at how the conservatives doing in fucking this random riding out in the middle of nowhere. You know, like there's really you when you're watching it with that kind of perspective, the partisanship is like really obvious and then the racism and the and the and the the chauvinism is really obvious and a lot of journalists of course don't see that because they're you know of this they're cut from the same cloth and so i thought that that was a pretty interesting sleight of hand and i also thought it was interesting that the cbc management put out a statement um kind of also um piggybacking off of a condemnation about maxime bernier uh, marshalling hatred towards three journalists on twitter and CBC was like, ooh, we better get on on this, which is like, uh, you guys, you don't defend your own fucking staff people. Like, what the fuck is this statement? And you could see they're trying to go back to this whole like, oh, well, our chief political fucking correspondent is like, she's always harassed and this is not right. It's just like, fuck off. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's very, very bizarre. But anyway, I, that's enough, enough words spoken about Rosie Barton. I mean, as I say, the crisis of democracy goes way deeper than that in this country. It's just, uh, you know, it. I, when I take a look at what has just happened and the last two years, I think that it's really important for us, Nora, as people on the left, to really think about what organizing opportunities are we missing and what do we need to do to make clear that this is a crisis because it really does feel like oh yeah nobody cares about anything and it's fine like everyone's super complacent about it but we shouldn't be because we can't afford to be there Mm -hmm. are too many lives at stake there are too many crises that are happening right now that these the government uh, the opposition parties are failing us on. They are failing us. And uh, that that those issues are only going to grow as, um, you know, you know, number one, like the climate crisis gets deeper and the impacts of the way that people are so desperate right now in so many different ways mm-hmm. uh, continues to, to harm us. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's two ways to look at this. There's like, you know, looking at the democracy that we have as it is, and then there's looking at what we need to be fighting for or organizing around to change. Um, And so let's talk about the first one, because that's the world that we're in. And um, I think it's helpful to name some of the some of the forces that have really uh, eroded democracy in this country. So, you know, you were talking about voter turnout at the beginning of the show. Um, With all the mail-out ballots that came in, voter turnout actually wasn't that low. It wasn't the lowest in all fucking time. It wasn't even the lowest since 2008. It's kind of like middle of the pack in modern elections. And that's fine, except that it meant that when you add together all the people who voted and all the people who didn't vote, Justin Trudeau has like the lowest mandate, if not like one of the Mm -hmm. lowest mandates of all time. Mm-hmm. And so that means that fewer than 20% of Canadians actually voted for the government that's that's governing them. Now, mm-hmm. it's not like 
Stephen Harper worth 26% of Canadians voted for him and he had a majority government and he was able to do whatever the fuck he wanted. Trudeau is still in a minority situation, which is at least a little bit more democratic because it does mean the opposition parties have a role to play, whereas with the majority governments, they just rule like they have fucking total control. Um, and, and those are fundamental problems because it means that your vote really is wasted. Like you, it doesn't, it literally does not matter if you vote in a lot of parts of this country. And that's why it was such an attractive offer for the liberals to win in 2015 by promising electoral reform because the, the Harper years, it was nine and a half years of, of feeling like absolutely nothing could confront or stop Stephen Harper because Again, in a majority situation, there's not a whole lot that the opposition can do. And so what does that mean in this situation that we live in right now? It means that there's widespread disenfranchisement, that a lot of the complaints that people are making that are anti-establishment or that are running along uh, into the arms of the PPC, uh, you know, that there's some truth to some of the things that people are saying about just how fucked and not responsive and corrupt our, our political system is. And then you have the added layer of the three governmental uh, levels that we have that often negatively interact with each other, which means, you know, like, why did Aaron O'Toole lose? Well, did he actually lose or did you just have an entire Ontario that will never vote conservative federally because they vote conservative provincially? You know, and this is where the Bloc Québécois is so interesting because when they were founded, the whole point of the Bloc was to get double confirmation of, of the two levels of government for how Quebecers voted. Because it was going to be way too easy for federal politicians to say, but I also represent Quebec. And the National Assembly wanted to say, no, no, but we represent Quebec. And so how do you get that double legitimacy to happen when you have uh, a whole set of politicians that are sitting in another pe like legislature, sitting like doing a whole other kind of work that represent the exact same people? And this was the idea behind the block, that you vote for the federal party that says, no, no, the authority for Quebec is actually the National Assembly. And, 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 and that approach has really transformed how federal politics plays in this province. It means that we have more choice. I mean, we still have first past the post. So it's, you know, there's, it's still not perfect. But just nowhere else in Canada even has that. And so you're just stuck either between two parties or if you're lucky, three parties. And nothing will seem to change. You just feel like you're absolutely incapable of voting for something to be any different. And I mean, part of that has to do with how the parties see their role as well, and especially the parties on the left, like the parties on the left. I'm, you know, should I should I make I that? Was say. <laughs> should I make that plural? I'm not sure. I don't know. But um, you know, like clearly, there's there's now a party on the right that doesn't give a fuck about that, about just getting elected being uh, the role of the party. I mean, I feel like. No, I know that um, what feels like a crisis of democracy right now would not feel as stark if the parties saw their role as being a part of the movements that are on the ground. If the parties saw their roles that way, and if the, um, the newspapers of records, the mainstream media, also saw their role as being a part of reporting on what was happening on the ground, that we have not had much reporting out of Ferry Creek, like the when it, what is now estimated to be the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history, 
it's a bit of a problem. It's a bit of a crisis of democracy that that's not a central issue, um, uh, just generally in uh, federal politics, because it is about a federal issue, as much as it is a provincial issue, and uh, that it is not being uh, uh, reported on in the way that it should be reported on. It's as though, Nora, it's as though the entire political and media apparatus of this country is only focused on someone who maybe looks like the Michaels. You're you're totally right. Like the 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 whole construction of who Canada is for and who Canada like which Canadians have the right to have their issues represented within mainstream discussion is at the heart of what is dragging down like the idea of democracy here, right? And and this is why there's people that will never vote. And there this is why there's people who are disaffected who um, who can be organized, right? This, and this is where social movements are so important. They can be organized, but they're going to be completely turned off by the by the by the three parties, the three main parties. And and you know something I, I was thinking um, that I think is 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 important to to reflect on. I might write about this this week. Is um, you know there's also this uh, there's this thing on the social democratic left in Canada, where in English Canada, where there it's just like impossible to end something and start something new. Like once you've founded something, it's like sacrosanct. You cannot get rid of it. And you can see this in a lot of different NGOs and a lot of different organizations that you're just like, why are you still hobbling along? Like, why don't you just call it a day and fucking let a new thing come and take that place? And especially with the NDP, you have a leadership in that party, an election leadership in that party that has run the campaign for the leader for the last like fucking decade and a half. And like, how is that responding to what people want? And how is that res- being like trying to engage new voters? Instead, the whole narrative has shifted. It's like, oh, no, we're going to engage young people through TikTok or whatever, rather than looking at how the conservatives and the liberals, they change fucking leadership groups every election. And there's a freshness with the way that they're talking about stuff, even if it turns me off. It's it's at least engaging. But but in, on the on the the left of the liberals, all we have, I mean, of course, you can go further left and we could have a whole conversation about the other kind of more far left parties. Although, I mean, that's perhaps for a different show. I have my criticisms of some of those parties do um, and uh, how they engage with uh, certain people. But anyway, um, but like when you have the exact same people like running the leaders show, running the bus, running the campaign, coming up with a fucking image it's so stale and it's so boring and you will never reach people who are already disengaged. And so not only are social Democrats in this country battling a fucking completely broken and fucked up electoral system that does not work. They're also just like refusing to understand that there has to be newness and freshness and renewal and rejuvenation. Like get anybody that has run the campaign before should fucking not be doing it more than three times. That's for fucking sure. Or should at least be taking a fucking vacation of a, of a decade before they come back and do it again. Um, but we just don't have that. There's just this like this real tight conservatism on, on the social democratic uh, part of this country that um, that I think that is invisible to a lot of people. And then so you're just looking at this being like, why is this impossible to change? Why is it impossible to change? It's like, well, because you can't change it. You can't change it. And actually, rather than talking about the real problem, which is this core that I'm talking about, it's all about, well, it's Jugmeet's fault. Like, he should, should he be, like, should he resign? No, he shouldn't resign. He ran a great campaign. Oh, but, you know, he's got so many, like, well, it's just like, it's actually not about him at all. It's, it's about the way that that whole party is organized. And maybe this is like, 
I don't know, a tangent? <laughs> it's it's not really, actually, because I think uh, part of what you're getting at um, is it's like, part of me is like, oh my gosh, yeah, it's a crisis of democracy. And then the other part of me is like, who the fuck cares? There's no such thing as democracy yeah, right. in Canada. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Totally. Like, there is no such thing. There's no such thing. Like, it doesn't really exist. We're all just like, um, kind of, you know, being manipulated uh, through power. And the game is, how much power can you amass? And the people who are currently um, you know, winning the game by pretending that all of the issues, the crises uh, um, uh, don't exist, um, that currently exist, well, um, they're not actually winning. They're losing the game to a, to, to a, to a group like the PP party um, who is refusing to do that. Like, wouldn't it be awesome if we had a party on the left or if we had um, institutions on the left, and we do. We have we have some um, progressive um, news outlets and so on, and people like I don't know us who will point at it and say, "Hey, everybody, take a look. There's something wrong here. Democracy doesn't exist. How can it? If you know, people can make a promise like electoral reform, and then that be forgotten. If someone can." Uh, uh, dress up in blackface and treat black people horribly and it's just totally fine let's just not bring it up for the next election and if you know and if and if and if and if you know like there's so many different examples that you can point to like if um uh fucking charges are brought down on snc lavalin but they happen after the fucking election (laughs) random you know like all of these things point to a system um, that is, uh, you know, truly colonial in its in the way that it is um, uh, set up, uh, that really does protect certain types of power. And so that means if you want to be a rupture to that power, you have to be willing to amass power in a different way. You have to be able to attack power in a different way. You have to get out of the regular and uh, do something completely unexpected and irregular and actually disseminate power, diffuse it amongst people who don't Mm -hmm. have it. We should probably talk about how you do that, although that's kind of what this whole podcast is about. (laughs) But (laughs) listen to episodes one through 160. What are we at now? 164? (laughs) 165, (laughs) if you want to catch last week's episode too. 165. But so so then the question is like, okay, so like – Sure, it would be very, very difficult to have proper democracy in Canada, considering all the things that you just said. But there are certainly some fixes that we can have. And one of those fixes is electoral reform. And it was so weird because it was like when the liberals were just like, okay, yeah, you know what? Fucking forget everything we said about electoral reform. Forget the national hearings that we held on electoral reform. Like, I don't know if everybody remembers those, but I certainly went to mine in Quebec City. And it was very interesting where they're hearing from experts to try and come up with this, like, recommendation. They go through this whole thing and the liberals are like, nah, this never happened. We're never going to talk about this again. And, you know, now we're in a minority government or we've been in a minority government since 2019. Like, how has, like, that not been a condition from the NDP on anything that they're working with the government on? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, how, mm-hmm. the, the, like, electoral reform seems like the baseline of what's fucking necessary. Because this this whole system was set up to only empower property-owning white men to participate in the political process. And actually, before, it wasn't just white men. It was property owners. That was the most important thing. So there actually were some women that were able to vote um, before 1867 in this country. Um, 
(laughs) when you have a system that's set up like that, it's like literally set up to exclude people. And so, of course, we have to change these systems if we want to start changing the way that the system treats others, the way the system treats people who are not white or who are not able-bodied or who are not wealthy, right? And and for some reason, like, it's just fallen back to being a fringe issue. Uh, and, and, and annoyingly, because of the success of the PP party, now I'm seeing some liberals be like, well, we can't have electoral reform because that will just mean that Maxime Bernier gets a seat. And it's just like, he had a fucking seat for like 15 years. Like, where, yeah. where were you yeah. when that happened? <laughs> like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, the point is that during in an elect in a proportional representation situation, even if Maxime Bernier gets the fucking one seat, it's not going to make that much of a difference. <laughs> nope. The real the the bigger issue, the bigger um, plus there is that the people who get the most seats won't be able to run roughshod over the whole fucking country while people continue to be ignored who are the most harmed by the organizing that Maxime Bernier does. So how about address that, you fucking assholes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like it's a perfect time to do it, right? Like you're in a minority government again. The conservatives, I think there's enough voices within the conservative party that you can kind of make this an issue and you can start to pick off conservative MPs that actually do believe in electoral reform, of which there are several. Um, And there's also a lot of liberals that that agree with it too because it is impossible to say that we live in a democracy when 18% of the people voted for the government. Like it is literally, that is not fucking democratic. That is the opposite of democratic. It's not that much more complicated than that. And of course, it adds up over the years. When you pile in, you know, neoliberal economic policy and and the collapse of social solidarity, and of course, a lot of this stuff has been just made even more clear by the pandemic, like now is the time to make this an issue. And I'm so shocked that in the aftermath of the election, like Sandy, did you see any parties or any politicians like first out of the gate being like, this is what what we want? This is what we want the nope. new government to do? <laughs> Not at all. Not a single one. So nope, nope, nope. there was one, uh, but it was in French and it was the Bloc. And they made a big issue about how they want to see uh, health transfer payments jacked through the roof to the provinces. It's like, that seemed easy. That seemed like a fucking easy thing to fucking call for. But why not look at these results? I mean, it, just from a fucking pure strategic perspective, the NDP did not have a great campaign. And of course, the last week was going to be full of people asking, hey, you spent double the amount of money at $25 million and got the fucking same result. That seems bad. Hey, should your leader resign? You guys uh, have, you know, only you didn't even hit 20% of the popular vote, all this kind of stuff. Why wouldn't the NDP change the channel instantly and be like, hey, our fucking demand is electoral reform. Our demand is democratic reform. Like, what the fuck? I'm curious, do you think that during this period, during the next parliament, that this is something that the liberals would be interested in discussing? I think that the liberals need to be forced into discussing this. And the only way that they'll be interested in doing this specifically is if there's a groundswell of support. So if it's very clear in the polls that this is something that's supported by Canadians and if the other parties are calling calling for it, maybe. But I I think that, you know, the more you push on this completely illegitimate power that they have, one, they know that power is fleeting as well as anyone else. And as much as they benefit a fucking lot from first past the post, there's snakes. They'll be able to benefit from a new system as well. Like that's 
like, you know, they know that. Um, and so I don't, I don't know. I have no confidence that it's going to come to pass if that's the real question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess it is the real, like, I, I also have no uh, confidence that I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. It should be though. It's, it's so obvious that this is the thing that should be discussed. Um, but I, I don't think that it is going to happen. Nora, did you see that there was a bunch of uh, climate uh, climate actions that happened on Friday? Yes, there's a huge march here that I couldn't join because my day was like back-to-back stuff. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really covered very much in Canada. I mean, there were, there were some news stories, some short news stories, but I mean, it was a massive global climate strike and it wasn't really uh, covered that much. And... When I think about all of the energy that has been going into all of these, um, the, this kind of surge of activism over the last couple of years in Canada, and then I look at the complacency of the political parties and how unimaginative they have been in addressing these crises, I wonder, I wonder, like, you know, we have never advocated for people um, putting all of their stock into partisan politics. We've always said that um, the way to win is on the ground. And we spoke last uh, episode about how important it is to use all the opportunities available to us to do that organizing. Like, you know, we have advocated for the NDP and the Greens merging as a party as something, but maybe all of these social movements need to get together and create a so- uh, political party as well. I don't know. Maybe that's a way to do it. The thing is, we just need something to rupture um, the power in this in this country. And we have been doing these ruptures. I'm not saying that they don't exist. They absolutely do. Um, but they haven't been sustainable. And they're so easily ignored and quelled. And I wonder, I wonder. We used to talk about this, uh, Nora, way back when you were quite a bit younger, running candidates as a way to... Um, make it clear uh, on a national stage or a provincial stage some of the things that we were calling for and why they were necessary. And I think about a candidate like uh, Sarone Gabresselassi, who ran for uh, municipal government uh, in Toronto. And, uh, you know, she was not an establishment candidate. She was someone that people were expecting to run, but she was able to make uh, free transit an issue, a major issue uh, in the election in which she ran. And I'm just thinking, you know, like we've got to get through um, this, this gross context where power uh, can ignore us and can continue to ignore us as we, uh, as we face the deepest consequences of the way that power has uh, fucked up um, the society and, uh, and the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And, you know, we spend a lot of time, I certainly spend a lot of time talking about, as you say, doing things differently, trying to get the NDP to stop doing things the same old ways. And I think that you're right, that the actual only confrontation to their power or the confrontation to their status quo has to come from the outside. And, um, and I think that, organizing in this country, I mean, there's a lot of history and you have to know your history and you have to know who's on what side and and why they're on that side. But the NDP is, it seems like this party that just has stopped 
evolving. And I mean, there's just been so many attempts to move the NDP left and it's impossible. And I'm not one of these people that think you can at all, actually. I think that like usually when I criticize the NDP, it's like literally with that intention to push from the outside because I mean, I'm, I'm not in a place to organize a new political party. But I do think that that there is the there is a need for something new. There is a need for something new that uh, that takes lessons from what we see in Quebec all the time with this process of regroupement, like regrouping and redoing a new orientation of something that's going to perhaps have echoes of things from the past, but also is able to come out and challenge things as they are. And you do this by by anchoring it in social movements, by taking the social movements demands and being like, this is our program. And, and and you start organizing like that and you absolutely have no illusion that this is not a political project that's going to get government, <laughs> probably. Although, I mean, in, in Canadian history, like, fuck, the, the Parti Québécois did that, actually, right? <laughs> like, they fucking did that in four years. Um, Quebec, I mean, is a different place. So I'm not sure that's totally possible for, for Canada. But just as we say things have to change within, like, the status quo of this country, like, things have to change on the left as well. And if people won't get out of the way, then you have to maybe do that yourself and think about what that looks like. And then you'll have a crisis of of, of conscience for a lot of people who are super involved with the NDP saying, what am I doing here? Like, what are we doing here? Are we just taking up space? Are we running a PR campaign? Or do we actually here have enough of a clear vision of the Canada that we want that we're able to fight for it? Or are we just fucking liberal light? Which I think, you know, that is actually probably more likely the the answer. So I tend to agree. I think that we definitely are in a place, it's, it's right after an election, and thinking of organizing riding by riding, the usefulness of that is it's all across Canada. It's all across Canada, and it gives you right off the bat 338 locations where you actually target who do we know there, who we can get, get like, how do, we, how do we form something like this? I think that that would be, I mean, if the time's not now, like, it's not going to be like, I mean, you know, we, sure, we can wait another fucking five years or 10 years or 15 years and hope things change, but like. <laughs> I, I also think, yes, as, as you say, things have to change on the left, and it's not just about elections. I'm going to say something directly to the folks who are union leaders uh, and representatives who are listening and to people who are part of progressive organizations that have a little bit more power, some of the older organizations that have the ear of uh, different uh, political institutions and institutions that pretend that they're not political but have a lot of power. If you see something like a climate strike and you see these like really great young people doing this really great thing. Don't just watch and applaud and then maybe call them up to be a part of a convention later and present to your members so you can say, look, we have this relationship with these people. Isn't this wonderful? Call them up and offer them shit. Give them money. Ask if they need, um, if they need office space. Ask if they need space uh, to meet. Uh, you know, uh, give them uh, connections to different place people that you're connected to in different towns. There's ways that you all have a lot of power and power to ensure that the power of people who are who are organizing things like climate strikes and are organizing things like uh, protecting old growth forests and who are organizing against white supremacy can make connections with people across the country because you have connections with people across the country. And I feel like 
as you say, like there's this staleness uh, to the way that organizing is happening in the NDP. Part of that is because that there is staleness to the way that um, like the established left in Canada is organizing altogether. Like they're just doing the same things that they've been doing forever. You need to be a part of relinquishing your power, sharing your power with people on the ground who don't have it. If you're watching um, people who are organizing for disability justice or for houselessness and you're sharing, you're saying like, wow, look at this guy with the tiny homes. That's great. But you're not um, using what you've got to say, what do you need? How can we help? Like, who can we connect you with? Can we expand this program through all of the members that we have um, that are experts in the trades? Like, how can we be a part of this? That should be the, the immediate thought, not this is great, let me share, or this is great, let me get this person to our next convention, or as just a simple donation, which is great. You should do the donations, but not just a simple donation. It should be more than that. You have so much more power and ability. And you folks have got to get creative too, because you are part of the democratic system. And uh, the staleness, the complacency of your organizations is also part of the crisis that we're talking about. 